Welcome back to On The Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by my dear friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Today we'll be talking about that Biden tax tape bomb that went off yesterday. Things that end in T-I-O-N for 500, please. And we might just get another rant from Danny Moses. Later, we'll be going off the tape in an interview with our Fast Money friend, Karen Feinerman. The market was great all week. Yeah, a couple down days, but by and large, the market was doing just fine. The market was higher. You know why? Because it was open. Then we got that tax tape bomb from the Biden administration. Capital gains going up potentially to 43.5% or so. I think that's complete horse hockey, to quote the great Sherman T. Potter. I think it's a bit of a chip in this negotiation war that politicians play. But for whatever reason, the market didn't seem to like it yesterday. Saw a huge move in the VIX to the upside, and the market sold off. I will tell you, there are 100 reasons to be bearish, and I could probably cite all 100 of them. In my opinion, Danny Moses, that Biden announcement isn't one of them. No, but it's enough when the market is priced to perfection just for people to take profits. Normally, you're always told don't make investment decisions based upon taxes, and people probably are wondering, you know, when that would be. This has not obviously happened yet. It's not the bill has not been passed. It's just been thrown out there. As you say, I think it is a negotiating play. I think Biden's history in the Senate, he knows that he can probably get some leverage on the infrastructure bill with a little give and take here. But listen, it's just an indication that the the market's price perfection and kind of the last money that comes in to buy it is always kind of the first money to leave. And I think we're going to continue to see this volatility that has been harboring underneath, you know, what looks to be a very, very strong bull market. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned like taking a look under the hood because there's no shortage, I think, of indicators that are suggesting something very different from the S&P 500, which is very near its all-time highs. We know that small caps have really stalled out. We know that the NASDAQ underperforms the S&P 500. I do think it's interesting that Tobias Lekovich, which we know is the chief strategist over there at Citigroup, he's been there for about 20 years or so, he penned an op-ed in the FT today that I thought on Thursday was really interesting. He was talking about their panic euphoria model. It takes into account a whole host of different sentiment issues, uh, positioning, uh, leverage, that sort of thing. He said the last time we saw such an upbeat zeitgeist that did not coincide with an immediate equity market correction was in 1999 when the dot-com bubble was in full bloom. And so he went on to say that the notion that is different this time can be noted in various institutional client conversations. Guy, that That is one phrase that tends to trigger you a little bit, that it is different this time, especially as it relates to the market. And, you know, I mean, I I guess the point is, it's like it's easy to kind of spot a bubble. It's really hard to kind of figure out when it's going to pop and how to how to really actually capitalize that from an investment standpoint. Listen, I don't think I've ever really used the term bubble because it's just, well, I'm not saying it's disingenuous, but to your point, it's extraordinarily difficult to not only identify one, but then to try to figure out when it's going to pop. And I dig Tobias as well, but it's never freaking different this time. It's always the same. It's like a Led Zeppelin song, Dan Nathan. A lot of them sound the same. And let me just mention something about under the hood since you brought it up. I had this great car, for those that care. I had an 89 Jaguar XJS. Beautiful, black, two-door, 12-cylinder. The thing was beautiful on the outside. But, you know, like many Jaguars of that era, it had serious electrical problems. And I remember one time I was having difficulty starting the car, and this guy wandered over. And he said, why don't you pop open the hood? So I opened the hood, and the engine is huge. And he's looking around, he's looking around. 
Then I close the hood. He had no effing idea what he's looking for. He's one of these assholes that, you know, they look around, but they don't know what they're looking for. And quite frankly, I'm not sure what I'm looking for either. But, you know, you look under the hood of this market, there's so many things that are concerning, but the exterior, the veneer, the paint job, the wax job, all looks really good. I don't care if you're going to get a paint job, a wax job, or what you're getting. It's obvious that pretty much everyone you know has something to say about the market, whether it's a stock market now or crypto. I want to tell a story. It was it was January or February of 2000. And I was down in Florida, of course, on some type of vacation. And I was hanging out in a pool area, probably having a beer. And I heard a conversation between the father and the son. And the father said something to the son like, son, why have you not been asking for money? This kid was a college student. He was a freshman. He goes, dad, why would I need money? I opened up an eat trade account. I'm crushing it. And I remember thinking at that moment, I had seen a lot of signs. And that was the one I think I took a dip in the pool, held my breath for a minute, came up, took a couple deep breaths, went up and made a phone call and either started selling things or shorting things. I was probably short. I probably lost 20% by shorting in early 99. Let me fast forward. I have two sons. One hates me because I made him sell Bitcoin when it was $100. He's, he's a pretty market astute guy. The other one you is- sure a, that's the reason? <laughs> well, a lot of reasons. The other one's a younger one who called me literally last week and told me that he wants to open up a Robinhood account. I'm like, I guess you don't listen to our podcast. That's right. fine. I said, with what money goes? I don't care. I want to buy this doggy coin. And I get, it's Dogecoin with a dog is the symbol. I said, we're done. It's all over. I want to thank you. My, I told my son, I want to thank you for confirming that the top is here. So sorry- but I had to give a little bit of personal experience and I'm not ripping on my kid. You know, I don't know if he's going to be in the markets one day, but I wanted to give those observations there. So, you know, what's really interesting about that, Danny, is that that a lot of the mania that was around, let's say, Internet stocks in the late 90s into the bubble burst in 2000 is not so different than what's going on with all these altcoins, because those were all memes. If you think about it right back then, this was new stuff. A lot of the traditional investment community didn't really understand how e-commerce was going to just transform retail or, or how some of, uh, you know, PayPal or some of the predecessors of that were going to change finance. And, and you just mentioned e-trade. Right. Look at how disruptive those online brokers were to traditional brokerage houses, that sort of thing. And so, you know, obviously they were way ahead of their time. I don't know if you guys have heard of this Chewy.com. Well, we've spent 20 years making fun of Pets.com. Right. It was just timing. They were just way ahead of their time. So when you think about all these altcoins and listen, uh, Dogecoin seems like a bit of a joke. It sounds like you have a little bit more to say on that front. But, you know, I'll just say this. You know, we see Mark Cuban. We see Elon Musk. These are two very popular people on the social web pushing the Dogecoin. Why isn't it that we could see 10 billionaires get behind this and find practical applications for Dogecoin and say, use this to transact in my ecosystem. Don't use Bitcoin. Then it could become real for all intents and purposes. So we might be very early on right here. That's all I'm saying to you. Billionaires, you know, can afford to lose a little bit of money. They like to be in the media. They like to be cool. And so they're going with the flow. And by the way, when I'm ripping on Dogecoin, I will separate that from Elon Musk or Tesla. I don't want, this is not necessarily his fault. These are people that are following this, but I can accept a lot of things. It's been hard for me to get my head around cryptocurrency in general. All right, you can convince me on Bitcoin. Okay, I get it. Yeah, there's a, convince me on Ethereum. All right, there's applications that are being run off it. All right, but here we go with Dogecoin. I don't know what the market cap is right now, trading between 30 and 40 billion. It just changes 10 billion every couple minutes. That's fine. There's no hard cap on issuance. There are no protocols. There's no developers on it. It has no application at all. As a matter of fact, I'll give Coinbase credit. If you go into Coinbase and you click on Dogecoin, it says, Dogecoin is a cryptocurrency that was created as a joke. Right. It literally 
says it on Coinbase. And so I can go so far, but when you start roping people in and people that, oh, I missed out on the crypto trade, you know what, Doge, no. This tells me we are near, I'm sorry, but we are near the end. Not the end of crypto, not shitting on crypto. I'm just saying this is the fluff. This is the last in, first out that's going to be occurring here in this market. Dan Lathan, let me ask you a question, if I may, because that's what we do here, right? Isn't that, isn't that correct, Danny, on, on the tape? So I want to ask <laughs> yes. you a question. Leverage is the great unwinder, right? Leverage works until it doesn't, and then it takes everything down. Is it safe to say that the leverage that we are concerned about at times in the equity market exists in this crypto market? I mean, we've seen Bitcoin, I think it topped out north of 64,000. It's probably down, what, 18% or so since then as we're doing this podcast. I mean, could we see deleveraging in crypto then carry over into the equity market? Is that a thing or are they that decoupled? Is it that devoid of whatever word you want to use in terms of connection to one another? I think what you're talking about is correlations, Guy. And, you know, we've talked about it in this podcast a lot. I mean, you know, over the last few years, we've only seen two meaningful sell-offs in the equity markets in Q4 2018. The, the S&P 500 sold off 20% in a straight line in about six weeks, and Bitcoin got cut in half. And then last February and March, the S&P 500 sold off 35%, and Bitcoin, again, got cut in half. I think it was down 60-some percent. So since those lows, we've seen Bitcoin go from 4,000 to 64,000. We're in this correction right now, 64,000 down to, I think, 53,000 as we speak here. But that peak-to-trough decline, if it were to stop here, is actually smaller than the peak-to-trough decline that we saw in January than the one that we saw in February. And it's pretty similar to the one that we saw in March. And I'll just say this about as far as why did this sell-off start? Well, we don't really know why. We could trace it back to maybe the sentiment around Coinbase last week. It happened over the weekend. It sounds like there were some liquidations of levered positions in the crypto market. If you looked at Bitcoin overnight on Saturday, I think it sold off like 8,000 in a straight line. That was liquidation. I think the leverage on exchanges like Coinbase aren't particularly excessive. They're like 30%. But if you look in the futures market, this is where our friend BK and he and I talked about this earlier in the week. The futures market, there is tremendous uh, leverage. as you, In some instances, 100 to 1, right? And what is the collateral in the futures market? It's actually the physical or the digital, however you want to call it, right? So there is that knock-on effect. And so really to just kind of wrap this up here, though, to your point, Guy, is that are we going to see losses in the crypto market bleed into the equity market. I would just tell you this, if you look at the way a lot of high growth, high valuation tech names have traded over the last three to six months, I think money has come out of there and gone into the crypto markets, if you will. I think a lot of the retail money, obviously, on the margin is what moves crypto, especially. And so where the the 62,000 down to 50, whatever it is, most of that is the retail money. I don't think the major institutions that are buying a 1% to 2% position in their portfolio are out there necessarily trading it. If anything, they might be buying it on on some type of dip. But it's been interesting to watch gold recently regain its footing as Bitcoin has kind of sold off here. And I know, Dan, you've talked about this before, but with Ethereum kind of trading up because there are true applications for it, there's certainly real value kind of built into some of these cryptocurrencies. But on the margin, I think Bitcoin is still kind of the expression trade, so to speak, for crypto. I think it's the sexiest one that's out there. It's the most known. It's the most accessible probably to to trade. But I'm not going to talk about cannabis necessarily as it relates to this, but the retail ownership in cannabis, because it can really only be retail owned, the U.S. names, because they trade on the pink sheets and they trade up in Canada on the exchange. It's talking about the U.S. MSOs. I watch those trade as retail 
stocks, you know, retail owned stocks. And I watch those. They're very volatile. And I see the same thing in crypto. So it's the weak hands that come in and out of these things. The smart money will buy the dips if they want to. But that's what I've been noticing lately. And it's been nice to see gold get a little bit of a boost here. I think certainly at the cost of Bitcoin. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, maybe it is at the cost of Bitcoin, or maybe it's in the fact that, you know, 10-year yields went from a peak of 178 down to 152, 153 or so. Maybe that's creating a tailwind for gold. Or that, that's somewhat counterintuitive to me. In terms of it's different this time, this is a bit of a tidbit that I picked up from the great Spencer Corrick, who produces from us. U.S. household sector's wealth as a percentage of equities is at a 50-year high, 5-0, half a hundred, as they say. So is it different this time? Yeah, it is different this time. Potentially could be a lot worse. Now, I teased something at the top of the show, and I'd like to sort of explain what I'm doing there. I said, things that end in T-I-O-N, and that's an homage, obviously, to the great Alex Trebek. I mentioned it, Dan and Danny, because David Faber has been tagged to host Jeopardy for a week, which is just going to be, I think it's for a week, which is just going to be tremendous. Faber is brilliant. He's got a great personality, and I look forward to it. But things that end in T-I-O-N, well, you can imagine, it's inflation. I want to read a couple things, Danny Moses, then you can go do your thing. Lumber prices, up 265% year-to-date. WTI, up 210% for the last year. Gasoline, 182%. Heating oil, 107%. Corn, 84%. Copper, 83%. Soybean, 72%. I can go on. Believe me, I can, but I won't. Why do I do that? Because despite what you hear from these genius Fed officials telling you that there's no inflation, inflation is all around us, and those are price points that absolutely prove it. Danny Moses. Well, Procter & Gamble and Coke both reiterated all those points that are going to be raising prices across the board, not just due to material shortages and ingredient shortages, but shipping costs, which have gone up. And yes, maybe it catches up at some point. But I have another guy. I will take T-I-O-N for 400. Please, go ahead. What would be the worst kind of thing that is not inflation, but rhymes with it, that could occur here in the future? Degradation? No, that's probably not right. (laughs) How about stagflation? Stagflation, correct. What is stagflation? This is the definition of stagflation. And Guy, I know you don't have your seatbelt on right now in your chair, but let me just give you the definition. I don't know if it's Investopedia or where. Stagflation can only occur if the government policies disrupt normal market functioning. (laughs) Okay, so we certainly have the recipe for it. And stagflation, for those out there, is when you actually have a slowing economy, which we obviously don't at the moment. No, listen, we have had that and we're going to have that again. But go ahead, continue. No, I'm saying with, so you're printing money left and right and you're going to have inflation. If inflation makes it past the demand curve, so to speak, as if the demand kind of wanes a little bit and we get through this stimulus that we've had, the stimmy checks going out and all the stuff that's been occurring for the consumer, that runs out. There's no telling that it doesn't mean that inflation is going to abate at all. And then you have stagflation. So what happens? you got corporate margin destruction potentially because you have lack of demand potentially for goods, but higher input costs. So pick your poison here, but we're too early probably to talk about stagflation, but I would not be surprised if we start hearing it. No, and you, you're 100% right. And why do I get a bit exercised? Because it's the geniuses and their policies that create this. I mean, you know, the, you talk about one of the Fed mandates is stable prices. Well, we have anything but. I mean, listen, let's just be perfectly clear, Dan Nathan. You can at me all you want, yell at me, make fun of me. The dual mandate of our Federal Reserve is to make sure the S&P 500 goes up every day and the NASDAQ goes up every day. And you know what? Given those mandates, they've been brilliant in everything they've done. So good for them. 
You know, I disagree with that. I mean, I, I think you're being a little. Are you being a little glib, Guy Adami? I just That's a great to, word, glib. Okay, no, he's trying to wind you up. Once, Danny wound I, me up. I'm trying to wind you up. You, and then you, you got to wind I, Danny up. Do you remember in, in January of 2018 when Bitcoin had just topped out at, at twenty thousand and it was at twelve thousand? And I called the technical analyst glib, and we got in a big fight on there. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? It was I, not, you threw uh, yeah. something across the desk. How can I forget? It, it was, was a little right piece of paper that I was winding up. Okay. Okay. I think you're being a little glib. You and I are not going to fight over it, that sort of thing. I mean, listen, I, that is not the Fed's dual mandate. I mean, do they care about the wealth effect? Do they care about the headlines of the stock market? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that stat that you just read, that stocks and household wealth and how they're tied to it, I, I get that. Danny just mentioned profit margins. I'm looking at a tweet from Carl Quintanilla. He's talking about expanding margins year over year. Philip Morris, they're up 7%. Whirlpool, up 6.2%. Harley Davidson, that's hog for you guys um, playing at home. That's 5.1%. Chipotle, up 4.7%. And Dow, up 4.5%. Okay, so- Backwards looking. Right, it is- Okay, so so here. I mean, the, I love Carl. He's the coolest guy. No, no, he's just retweeting. And Danny, you know the saying on Twitter that retweets are not endorsements. I never got that. Do you guys get that? I mean, like, if I'm retweeting something, it, it kind of means I endorse it, right? Or no? Right. It means you're acknowledging it. You're not necessarily endorsing it. I mean, there is a nuanced. Well, the act of retweeting. No, I think the act of liking. The act of putting that heart there right. is, is anyway. Go ahead. Dude. All right. So so here here's my point though that that I want to make about why why I think the Fed might not be as far off of this transitory comment about inflation as you think. If you're looking at the, the disruptions in the supply chain, they're clearly backward looking, Danny, as you just said, from the pandemic, right? And we're looking at supply shortages of certain things like chips and that sort of thing. Again, they will get fixed over the not so distant future, right? And then if you're talking about all like lumber prices and that sort of thing. Well, we've seen some really weird dynamics in housing because of the pandemic. And then when you consider the savings rate, obviously, I know that that helps your kind of notion about inflation, that there's a lot of money to spend. But I think that things are probably going to get normalized quicker than you think on the other side of the pandemic. So I just think then we get back to talking about how technology is this massive deflationary force. And yes, it is. You know, so to me, I, I think they're probably closer to correct than you guys. Is there a potential for some sort of stagflation? I would agree that we got to go back to that 2% year over year GDP in the not so distant future. Here's why I think, listen, and again, I'm, I'm not suggesting I'm right. This is just my opinion, which I think I'm still entitled to in 2021, you United are. States of America. You will not be canceled for your opinion. You, you on, know, on So 73% of the United States economy is driven by people buying shit. It's a consumer driven economy. When do people buy things? When they feel good about things. When do they feel good about things? In my opinion, when they see the stock market go up every single day, they feel good about things. Why? Not because everybody owns stocks. That's not what I'm saying. Because they view the stock market as a gauge for the economy. When they see the market go up every day, they say, things must be pretty good. My neighbor just bought that Mercedes. Maybe I can buy one as well. Or even better, I should be able to buy one myself. I'm going to do it. When do people stop spending? I'll tell you when. When the market goes down, Dan, 19.9% in a month and a half like it did in October 18 to December 2018. And consumer spending stopped on a dime. The only time people stop spending is we have events in the stock market. I think the Fed officials know that, and I think that's what their crosshairs have always been on. Call me crazy. Call me late for dinner. But that's my view. 
Well, I mean, listen, you have your 10-year treasury yield at 1.55 or one double, as they say, right? And then the Fed is still doing all their QE and all that sort of stuff. And and you're telling me that you know that the minute that they kind of take their foot off the pedal, that the stock market's going to crater, then they're not going to do it, I guess, is the issue. So, you know, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to fight it. If you look around the stock market, I see plenty of sectors that correct over time, right? They don't kind of get overextended here. Um, Just look at technology over the last six months or so. It's gone sideways. So I guess the point is, is that if equities are the only game in town and crypto is the only game in town, they probably get bought on dips. Danny said something I think really important about crypto before is that that the institutions are sitting there waiting. They almost want the correction to happen. They don't own enough of it. Is that fair to say? And so the sell-offs are retail-driven, but the bottoms get put in by institutions. And maybe it's the same thing about the stock market. Yeah, I think that is the case. Well, we also had bank earnings last week, and we, we had some remarkable numbers, specifically out of JP Morgan. Great numbers. So I don't know, pretty lousy price action, as they say. You know, good numbers, bad price action, that's telling you something. So why are banks trading lower? Well, probably one of the reasons because rates have got backed up to Dan Nathan's point earlier. The other reason is I think people are looking at it and say, you know, on a, on a price to tangible book, these banks are a little expensive. There's some other banks out there that are in your crosshair, though, Danny Moses. Yeah, it's one in Switzerland. <laughs> it's been in the news lately, Credit Suisse, and they've uh, had a couple of issues recently. Archegos, obviously one. Greensill was another. They came out today in conjunction and they, they increased what the losses were going to be as it relates to Archegos, I think another over half a billion you know, or so. And they're raising $2 billion. I think the regulators are forcing them to do that. But what the regulators are also doing is now they're, they're actually investigating into the Greensill and to the Archegos. And specifically on the Greensill, we talked about this before, it's one thing that they had a corporate investment in Greensill. It's another that they were running these funds, these supply chain finance funds, and potentially lost six to seven billion of the ten billion that were in there. And I thought for sure, and I still do believe that they'll be liable whether they want to volunteer that or not. They actually said on the earnings call today that they don't plan on reimbursing anyone for that. I don't think they can reimburse anyone for that at this moment. So they're obviously why not just say we're not going to do it? And I think that brings up a whole nother issue for them. And I think beyond that, and I've talked about this before, is that the other player that was involved in all this green sell and Credit Suisse was SoftBank. And, you know, SoftBank's been in the news for years. I mean, pretty eccentric guy that runs it, Masa-san. But let me just go back. And we talked about the late 90s, 2000 period. So SoftBank was already a public company over in Japan. It wasn't traded publicly here at that point. They lost 95% of their market value in the, in the dot-com crash. Lost $75 billion dollars. So this is an aggressive guy, Masa-san. He's been out there before. He's a visionary, obviously. He has a 300-year plan, okay? So he obviously had a couple huge wins. He made a point to make a, take a huge stake in Yahoo at the time. That was massive for him. He obviously had the Alibaba stake. That was massive for him. He's had this coupon work for him. That's massive. But within all of these have been these massive kind of blow-ups. But I want to talk specifically about Greensill in this case because I think it was indicative. So they made a billion and a half dollar investment in Greensill couple years ago. And then they also gave them a couple hundred million dollars at the end of last year. But that couple hundred million dollars that they gave them at the end of last year actually was meant to go fund Katera, which is a private U.S. construction company that SoftBank had exposure to. And for some reason, they convinced Greensill to actually exchange a 400, I think it was a $435 million loan that Greensill had to Katera to exchange that for a 5% stake in the company. Okay, well, if I'm doing my math correctly, guy, help me out here, but that's valuing uh, somewhere near between 8 and $9 billion for this Katera, which is 
effectively a zero at mm-hmm. this point. So my point is that they gave him the $400 million to Greensill in late 2000 for this purpose. The SoftBank's always kind of involved. We we saw the WeWork. We obviously saw what they do. And then this quote from Masasan a couple of years ago, when asked about WeWork and his investment, he said, quote, feeling is more important than just looking at numbers. You have to feel the force like Star Wars. I mean, this is where we are right now, you know, in this market. So I'm sorry, I could go on and rant and talk. Listen, they've had a lot of wins, okay? They announced a buyback last year right during the, the, the craziness of the pandemic. The stock was getting demolished. So they announced a buyback, I think, on March 13th and then again on March 20th because the March 13th month didn't work in terms of sending the signal to the market. And they did buy back stock down at ridiculously low levels. I'm, and I'm not going to make a call here on whether SoftBank is a short or not. But my point is that they blew up once before. It's not an operating company. It's an investment vehicle. It's effectively an ETF of growth companies that are in there, some being misvalued and some they've had some huge wins. I just think it's something to pay attention to. I agree. And to think that this Archegos thing is just a one-off and they're not other Archegoses like they're out there. I mean, it's just, it's it's folly. I mean, it's absolute folly. You got to believe that for every Archegos, there are 10 other guys and gals out there that have done similar and we're just going to learn about it. There's never just one cockroach. I learned that one from you, Dan Nathan. Isn't that correct? Yeah. And you know, the other thing is it, it, this all goes back to rates, guys, when you think about it, right? So like- Oh, now you, you're against rate? You're no. against the Fed? <laughs> but my point is, is that you have an investment bank that that is doing business. They're finding a hard time making money, right? They're not a big money center bank, right? So they're doing business with funds and they're not doing the, the sort of due diligence or risk management in hindsight that they should have been doing. And they end up losing a lot of money. And then you you have SoftBank and they're looking at all the money that they can raise from the Middle East. Um, and then they're looking how they can spread that around. And you talk about those big winners. I mean, what they lost in WeWork was a rounding error and that deal that just came a, a couple months ago. In hindsight, it really was, right? So they're incentivized to kind of put that money to work and take big bets. I think it's different for an investment vehicle like SoftBank than it is for an investment bank like Credit Suisse. I hate those effing cockroaches because they're never just one of them. And they're definitely freaking hard to kill. It's like, what's what was that Steven Seagal? I mean, oh, Steve, he was ever. hard to kill. Well, so are the cockroaches. Anybody see Richie? <laughs> Anybody know you Bobby Lupo? <laughs> By the way, for his time, I know the guy's a freak show, Seagal, but my God, what are, that series was incredible. Un- unbelievable. Look, guy, I got you on something. No, no but listen. You. He's got Grab Holdings, right, and that announced into a $40 billion spec. He's got Didi, which is another ride-hailing delivery thing that's IPOing between 70 and $100 billion. He owns a little TikTok, right? The guy has some winners out there. He's got money to do it. It becomes self-fulfilling, and he can expose himself. All I'm saying is that the due diligence needed to really throw around that kind of money is probably not there. And people took a shot at SoftBank you know, because of WeWork, by the way, couple years ago when it was blowing up and the stock got drilled and rightfully so but the market has rallied the 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 market for unicorns has rallied and i will just say this you know on the spac market in general and we can talk about that right now the reason that obviously has slowed down is the sec has come up with any excuse that they can have to basically say all right we're going to require this we're investigating this their their newest thing is that they want people to account for warrants uh, as a liability so basically it doesn't really change the operating metrics of any of these companies that are in closing mode right now to close this back. But what it does is it creates a layer of audit that needs a re-audit, legal stuff that needs to be done. And the SEC, I just think, wants everybody to take a deep breath. And I'll close it with this on this point. WeWork, obviously, is now going into a SPAC. And we all know one of the greatest things about a SPAC, which can be useful, is you can give out-year forecasts, right? Are you kidding me? 
Someone go look at the forecast that WeWork put out for 2022, 23, and 24 and explain to me, I'll bet anyone out there right now that those numbers are not achievable, but this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with. And so where's it going to trade? Is it going to be $7 billion, $10 billion for long when it goes public and closes? I don't know. Danny, before we go to off the tape with K-Fine in 09, House of Representatives passed the Safe Banking Act this week. Thoughts on that, please. Yeah, that was expected. I think it's the third time they passed it. It's never gotten time on the Senate floor. It will get time on the Senate floor this time. The underperformance in the stocks, you know, it was all excitement anytime around 420, April 20th, which is always this celebration of cannabis across the world. That's a whole other story. I think what happens to these stocks in the U.S., and many of them have not reported, they trade off the Canadian names. And I keep, I don't know how to beat this into people's head that the Canadian names are not the U.S. names. The only connection that Canada has to the U.S. as far as how the stocks should trade is if the federal laws change in the U.S. and the Canadian names can come in and buy these U.S. names. That's not happening happening anytime soon. So all these ETFs, for the most part, are set up and they looks like it's a cannabis ETF with the exception of our friend Tim Seymour, who actually I think has has a very good structure. And you, you think you're buying U.S. names, but you're not. So anyway, do your homework on those. Still like the names. I think we'll get some time on the Senate floor, hopefully soon with this thing. And I still believe, as Brady Cobb said on our previous episode, that this thing could pass by October 1st. When we come back, a conversation with our friend and CNBC Fast Money castmate, Karen Feinerman. Karen Feinerman began her career as a trader specializing in risk arbitrage. She went on to co-found New York-based hedge fund Metropolitan Capital Advisors, where she currently serves as CEO. Karen is proud to serve on the board of the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research and on the undergraduate executive board at Wharton, her alma mater. Karen, it is a pleasure to have my fast money friend of more than 14 years join us off the tape. So I read her incredible bio. By the way, I could do it for a half an hour because everything Karen's accomplished and will accomplish is just pretty amazing. But welcome to On the Tape, Kay Fine. How are you today? I'm good, and I'm very happy to be here with my two guys. Well, come on. I mean, I know you say that if Tim were here, you'd say the same thing. I get how the whole thing works. But, you know, one of my favorite mo- – listen, there have been many favorite moments. We'll talk about it. But on live TV – you said something, and I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. You said about Dan, you said, I would agree with Dan, but then we'd both be wrong, which was one of the most genius comments in the history of live television. So tell the audience now, I know people might think that you and Dan don't get along. Far from it, anything but you guys are extraordinarily close. Yes, we're good friends. And we have our little chit chats. We got our little text things. So I call him, he calls me. I'm always happy to hear from him. He, we were down in Jamaica one time. We were at the same hotel. He came over, brought the kids. We all had dinner together. I love Dan. I love fighting with Dan. I love what a pain in the ass Dan is. I love everything about Dan. But that's the core of a relationship is the fact that you're able to do that in a very public way, but yet then still have this fondness for one another. I think it's remarkable. Me, on the other hand, I'm not smart enough to, to argue or bicker or well, try to challenge you. So I stay. 
I'm smart enough to stay away from that, Dan. You know, it's funny because, Guy, obviously you were an original Fast Money participant panelist. I know that Karen started very soon after the show got started in 2007. I had started doing Options Action in 2009, and then they threw me in to a little Fast Money. I think it was probably about 2011. And, and I think I was there to kind of be like the stick in the eye sort of thing. But I learned a lesson kind of the hard way. It's like, come at the big, dumb, old guy like Guy. Don't come at Karen. I think she shut no. me down a couple times early on. And I think that's why people thought that we had a little thing. <laughs> yeah, I think your first show was Caterpillar. Jane Wells was doing a hit from Vegas. She was driving a Caterpillar. And I think you said women shouldn't be allowed to drive. No, what I said was that's pretty remarkable that Jane Wells is up on this 20-foot Caterpillar tractor. I said, I won't even let my wife drive our SUV. And Karen really did not take kindly to that comment. No, nor should. I mean, I'm surprised I didn't shoot you down. But listen, maybe I wasn't paying attention to you. So some things never change. But so it's interesting. So obviously, Fast Money started in earnest in 2007, but it was a segment all through 2006. And, you know, we were looking for different people to come in. And I think we found Karen or the network found Karen because you were on the cover of a magazine a now defunct magazine, I think called Trader Monthly. Is that correct? Well, I think it, it may have been defunct because I was in it, I think is what happened. But I think there's someone else was on the cover, but it was an issue about women on Wall Street. And so we brought you in and you had to be saying to yourself, listen, you're a brilliant, extraordinarily successful person. You come in with a bunch of chabooks like me and the rest of the gang. What were your th- original thoughts? Like, do you had to say, what am I getting myself into here? Yeah, I did for a minute. I did say, what am I getting myself into? You know, what potential damage am I doing to my reputation? And then I realized, you know what, I'm a hedge fund manager, really, what kind of reputation do I have? So the downside was pretty low. And it was really fun. It was obvious from the beginning that you guys were fun. We are fun. And what people either realize or don't realize is we all get along really well. It's fascinating. I've watched your kids grow up, and we'll talk about that. You've seen my kids grow up. I mean, I remember when your kids were little, they would bring me gummy bears to the set because they knew I liked gummy bears. And it's fascinating to see them. And it's 14 years later, here we are. Did you ever think it was going to last this long? No, I remember being very hesitant to sign a two-year contract. I felt like that was really going out on the limb. And I don't know, I've signed, I don't know, five or six contracts since then. So I did not foresee this coming. Like I said to my husband, our 25th anniversary, really, I really did not see this coming. (laughs) Similar. So, so Karen, let me ask you this, because, you know, for me, uh, we've all had our own experiences going from being investors to stock market pundits. And for me, in some ways, it's made me like a worse investor, a worse trader, knowing that when I'm on a desk, a trading desk, and I'm trading or thinking about an entry or an exit point, I realize that in my head, I can change my mind whenever I want, and I can do whatever I want. But when we go on, on national TV, and our audience gets to know this, and they get to know our kind of MO or whatever, we can't be changing our minds all the time, right? And we know that sometimes that's what makes a really good investor. How have you been able to kind of think about keeping those two skill sets kind of separated by staying in the late? that we think is most important for a lot of viewers who are kind of looking to, as I do air quotes, the pros for how to navigate markets or specific situations? That's a really good question because it's a burden that I feel to be in a position to give people what they take as advice. So I don't want to speak lightly and I really want to be thoughtful. I guess I'm in a little bit different. I'm not a trader. So I'm not really in and out. So I think more long-term, I'm not quite as focused on 
price, but I am focused on, wow, I said this. Let's pick an example that's so timely right now. Alibaba, which I've liked a lot, has just had one hiccup and then getting punched in the face after another. And I know there are people out there who bought it because I like it and I said I own it. I feel a responsibility about that, as I should. I think as anyone should, you shouldn't just spout things off. So I take that seriously and it does weigh on me. Yeah, part of that is timeframes too. And I think that you just mentioned that differentiation between being an investor and being a trader. And I think the hard part is matching up what your view is and your time horizon and your fundamental like set of catalysts that you have versus somebody who's like, I like Karen, she's smart, she's long it, I'm buying it here and I'm gonna look for it. So, oh, but it's going lower. And Karen's not, you're not looking at every tick. And I, and I think that guy, you you would agree is that there's really no formula for that. And the, the, the best we can do is be as transparent and and you seem to care a great deal about that because you do understand that people are acting on these observations which aren't exactly advice yeah i also i think i take the haters too much to heart i follow guy who has a has a big set of haters don't you guy <laughs> unbelievable the list is long and distinguished as they said in top gun but you know when you're as popular as you're you're gonna have a lot of haters too so i read one of your recent ones which was uh wow thanks for the um Stunning input. You know, there's a Mensa meeting later. Something to that effect. <laughs> I think I said something like, you know, be careful you're not late for your Mensa meeting. You want to get a chair up front or something like that. No, I try to have fun with it. I understand it. For most of these people, they're not really necessarily angry at us. But most of them are just angry at themselves. And, and we become just something they can rage against because to them, you know, we're not really human beings until you make yourself a human being by responding and I try to have fun with it. I never try to escalate. You know, I try to make light of it or say what I deem to be clever things. And a lot of times that diffuses the situation. But that's one of the burdens that we bear by doing this show every night. You're going to get a lot of that vitriol. But I sort of enjoy it. Maybe I'm just wired a little bit differently than most. Well, maybe it's a, maybe it's a women thing, too. But I... I like converting them from haters to supporters. Dan, you don't care, which is great. I don't care. You know what's funny though, Karen? I think you have such a unique positioning on this. I mean, literally some nights, I mean, we're very fortunate to obviously have Melissa Lee on every night. Wall Street oftentimes can seem like a very bro-dominated sort of culture. And I think we found a really good kind of happy medium between that. So we tend to be a bit more combative, I, I think. Listen, I don't run a hedge fund. I'm not soliciting funds. I'm not this or that or whatever. I don't really feel like I have to play nice with people. I think that, you know, oftentimes that we hear a lot of this criticism, whether it be on social media or something like that. How many of these people would have walked up to the NASDAQ as we're walking out after we shoot a show and say the sort of things that they say on Twitter to our faces, right? I mean, really, at the end of the day. So I don't know. I mean, listen, I think that we're only doing it because we enjoy it for the most part. If we didn't enjoy it, we wouldn't do it. But by the same token, you understand that you open yourselves up to criticism because people really are transacting on things that we're saying, right? And so we all feel the weight of that. Yeah, I, I do feel the burden. But you bring up a good point. I don't recall us almost ever having someone come up to us at the NASDAQ with something really negative to say. No. And it's interesting what you find is people that will say things on Twitter, those same people, if they met you in the street, which they often do, they'll be some of the kindest, most generous people in terms of their, you're the greatest, love the show. And then when they're behind the screen, it's a completely different thing. I just think that's human nature. What also is human nature, and we've seen it play itself out over the last six months, and I don't want to talk about GameStop, the stock, but I do want to talk about this whole 
Robin Hood phenomenon, Wall Street bets, all these things, has it forced you to change the way you do things? Or is it business as usual for you and you're just looking at this through a different lens? I try not to get sucked into it because it is a vortex, right? I mean, the idea that we're still talking about GameStop is amazing to me that it's still levitating at this level of 100, and I don't know where it is today, 150 or whatever. So I, I'm shocked at how that hasn't died already. And not only has it not died, it seems to have spread to other areas like Dogecoin, which is just the most ridiculous. Dogecoin makes GameStop look like, I don't know, something very solid, which it may be, but is this value? No. But Dogecoin is ridiculous and how that could self-perpetuate, that's amazing to me. Is this all stimulus money? Where is this coming from? You know, it's funny. I think it's a really interesting combination, like you said, Karen, of kind of that Wall Street bets phenomenon, the stimulus, and some of the reasons for there's financial influencers. There are people talking about it on Twitter, real people. Elon Musk, one of the most followed people on social media all over the world, memeing it. Uh, Mark Cuban, also, and I think it's the combination that it was also trading at six cents two weeks ago. So people could get in and size up on it, right? And so to me, it's the ultimate meme sort of situation. But it's interesting. We were just talking about you being an investor, Karen. Going back, I mean, listen, you know, we talk about Guy. He traded through the crash and, and oh, not that crash, not the 1987 crash, the 29 crash. But you started or you had a very interesting seat at a very venerable firm, DLJ, and in risk arb, right? Back in the day. And so how did you, like, did that kind of create this very analytical sort of mindset that you have towards investing? Because you're always looking at one thing versus another. You know what I mean? Like, tell us a little bit about how you got in that seat and how it kind of informed your path um, forward and ultimately managing a hedge fund and, and talking to the people on national TV about investing. So risk arbitrage was always really interesting to me. I, there was something really exciting about takeovers and that era. There was a, a lot of big activity and risk arb, it's really important. What's the risk? What's the reward, right? It's in the name risk arb. So you have to assess the risk and figure out what the reward is. What is the likelihood of each and come up with a value for the stock? And also options were young then. It was an excellent way to play risk arb deals because you could set up better risk rewards. But this idea of always looking at risk reward, price on its own doesn't give you much information. Price relative to where it used to be, relative to other to the balance sheet, that's important. And that was another thing risk arb taught about balance sheet as well and enterprise value, which a lot of people seem to ignore right now. Everything is ignored right now, but it's interesting. That was a venerable firm, but I know your background. I know your sisters. I know your brother. I met your dad years ago, but I knew your mom. I wouldn't say rather well, but I got to spend some time with her and she was a hoot for sure. But talk about your childhood because what people don't know is you're incredibly successful, but so are the rest of your siblings. I mean, it's pretty remarkable family. Um, well, thank you. My mom, who uh, passed away a while ago now, 10 years ago, or not quite, but she loved Guy. Guy, all the parents love Guy. They that's really that's because we're the same age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the parents love Guy. But my mom really, she insisted, you know, there's four girls and a son. You got to make your own money, especially girls. You got to make your own money. So it was always important to me. I was going to be financially independent. That was really important. And I didn't understand how other women didn't want to be. I just didn't get it. 
And so I always thought, all right, what's the best way to be financially independent, to make money? Where's the best place to make money? To go to Wall Street. And so I went straight to Wall Street. But my sister, Wendy Feinerman, she found a different route. Wendy, those of you who don't know, Wendy Feinerman is a very accomplished producer. She's made many films that you've seen, including Forrest Gump and Devil Wears Prada. And I mean, she won an Oscar for Forrest Gump. So she's the real deal. And then my brother, Mark, is a big real estate He's a maher, as we call him, Dan, you know what that means, right? And my sister Stacy is, she's going now through her third IPO at a uh, tech company. And then my little sister, Leslie, she was at a big hedge fund and she's Morgan Stanley and then a hedge fund. And, you know, we all, all wanted to work. We always wanted to work and we always wanted to be successful. And I feel like uh, maybe the third most successful in the family, I don't know, it changes, but it was really important that we accomplish something. My friend always said, my mom said, don't come home till you set the world on fire. Then you all have it. You should speak about your dad as well, because you know he was the team physician or the team orthopedist for UCLA for years, for those great UCLA basketball teams. And you grew up, I think, watching a lot of those teams, which has must have been equally impressive to you. Yeah. I mean, that's funny you should say that. I went, my dad first started UCLA he was an orthopedic surgeon and the team physician for football and basketball. I'm wearing my What Would Wooden Say shirt. So John Wooden was a big presence. And I always think, you know, that style, that quiet style of, of substance and discipline and thoughtfulness, it was just revered. And my dad was kind of like that. And we always looked up to John Wooden. And, you know, I have this picture. I've shared it to you. I brought on the show, my brother and I with John Wooden, and it, I don't know, something about him is just sort of, I don't know, how one wants to be, how one should be. We also share something while we're sticking on the family here. You know, your family, quite extraordinary, but your immediate family, your offspring, you have two sets of twins. Maybe people don't know that, but I am also one of two sets of twins. And that's something I think is really unique. Obviously, it's been like really defining for me as a person as I've grown up and everything like that. How have you been able to do all of this that we've been talking about through your career, raising two sets of twins? I know that they're kind of out in the world at this moment in college or, or, or leaving that Thursday. Was that like a unique challenge? It was, I think, a unique challenge, but I didn't realize it at the time. Like, Twins is all I know. And I always say to young mothers, give up everything, everything to get more help. It, it's just so worth it. So we had a lot of help. That was huge. Lawrence, as you guys know, my husband Lawrence was very involved as a father. So that was a must. And he was always very supportive of my career and doing what I wanted to do. And he always helped or always hired someone to help. So that was sort of how we got through it. The idea of another Dan, it's not an identical twin. I know that, which is fortunate for the world, right, Dan? It's quite scary, the, the, the notion, but my brother, my twin brother, Andy, is, is quite opposite of me. But I will tell you that that bond that he and I have is, is truly special. I know your kids. They're all very special kids. They're great kids. And then my relationship with my two older sisters, who are two and a quarter years older, is also very unique. And I think there's just something about being a twin. It's just different than being a solo child. I will tell you this, that you're advice that you give to all mothers, whether they have twins or not, is pretty shocking. Because I remember when you met my mom on the set of Fast Money once, you said, I don't know how you do it with him to begin with. But then there's two sets of twins. And my mom actually had no help. 
My mom will tell you that she didn't leave the house for like three years from when my brother and I were born. And so, and it wasn't that my dad, my dad was in the army then and stuff like that. They just didn't have the means to do it. But listen, all the power to your kids, they're going to go out and change the world and light it on fire also. No doubt about, I mean, listen, I know all four of those kids and I've just loved watching them grow up. And each one of them is extraordinary. But you know, it's funny, I'm drawn to the two little ones. I mean, Kate and William, to me, there's just something about them that's just, I'm fascinated by the two of them. And I love Lucy and Jack as well. But it's just really interesting to see, you know, these four kids. They're four very different people, but I'm sure that's true with a lot of families. And I want to talk about some of your interests because I don't think a lot of people realize you're a very competitive tennis player. And you're, you were definitely one of these people that are breaking rackets and saying shit and all those fun words that I'd love to use. And I wish I could use them more often. But speak to the tennis, because I think one of your heroes, and you can correct me, is Billie Jean King, for obvious reasons, but for a number of reasons as well. Yeah, so I was a very competitive tennis player, and I really hated losing. I was not a good loser. You know, what's the saying? Show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. Something like that. And I really hated losing. I would smash my rackets. I don't know why. I don't know why that was that I couldn't control it. I just hated losing so much. And I matured a little bit, but my kids will tell you, I still get really pissed over little, little things. But being a competitive anything, I think is great for adolescents. Just being part of a team, even though tennis is a little bit more of a individual sport, but being part of a team, being disciplined, having a goal, working hard at something, seeing that changes, seeing that incremental improvement. I mean, I know both of you guys were, were football and lacrosse players, respectively, and it's a really important part of your upbringing, I would think, right? You think of that as instrumental in making you who you are. Yeah. Well, for me, I was just a meathead. So I was one of these people that as much as I enjoyed hitting people, I equally enjoyed getting hit by people, which again, is a bit of a character flaw. But I mean, that's just the way I'm wired. I'm sure that comes as no surprise to you. The other thing is, I, you know, you've gotten to know some really interesting people. Now, I don't want to necessarily talk about your love affair with Jamie Dimon, but since we're on the subject, let's talk about your love affair with Jamie Dimon. Listen, I get it. He's incredibly brilliant mind. I just, I just don't get it on the, on the physical level. Like to me, if he was a janitor, you'd walk right by him, Karen. Well, listen, there's something about the swagger of it's not the money. I know you think it's the money. It's really no, not. No, I, I, I don't. Oh, okay. I, that's my point. I don't. Okay. It's, I, my point is like, you know, I get it. He runs J.P. Morgan. He but runs like, J.P. Morgan. Yes. Is that the allure? Because physically, he's just, you know, he's just another old dude like me. He's not. First of all, you think he's five foot four. He's not. Not that there's anything wrong with people who are five four. He's not. He's like six one or six two. He's very handsome. He's got this accent that I get a huge kick out of. And he's the greatest executive in financial services of our generation, right? To think that they did not lose money in the financial crisis is extraordinary. Plus, I love how he just, he'll say whatever he thinks. The London whale. Do you remember the London whale? Uh, Yes. And of course, that was a disaster for them. And he had this very hastily arranged conference call to say, you know, I said it was a tempest in a teapot. I was wrong. And we got this giant loss and someone asked him, are we going to see other banks with big exposure as well? And he said, if you're asking me if they're as stupid as we are, I don't know. I can only answer for us. And I love that answer. Everyone else will be like, well, you know, we think that there are several players, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know what they would say, but they wouldn't say that. 
And he says things like, you know what? Sometimes we're going to step in dog shit and we're going to try not to do that very often. I love that in a CEO, particularly one of, you know, the CEO of JP Morgan. That's great. So unfortunately, people can't see this. If they did, they would see your eyes are just light up when I mention the name, which I think is remarkable. And, you know, restraining order notwithstanding, you've brought it up on the show. I think JP Morgan might use that 45 second diatribe as part of their next earnings call. But anyway, I, I do think it's fascinating. Yeah, this is I was at some event in, in Washington, D.C. I was there and with my husband and, and Jamie was there. And I said to Lawrence, listen, I'm going back to the city with Jamie. And Lawrence is like, what are you what are you talking about? <laughs> Sit on his plane. He's going back. And, I, you know, I wasn't I, I never even discussed that with Jamie. I just said hi. That was it. But, you know, I like I like to keep Lawrence on his toes. No doubt. No doubt. And he should be on his toes. So, Karen, you're a shareholder. You obviously just kind of laid out your affection for the CEO. And he's been a tremendous steward of this company for 20 years. It's probably the largest bank by market cap on the planet at $450 billion. And when you think about it and you think about that investor letter that he had or the shareholder letter from a, a few weeks back, you can tell he's a little pissed off, to say the least, about some of these fintech companies and the lack of regulation that they have and the sort of market share that they're gaining on JP Morgan. What is his last act here? Because he can't be going for too much longer. He sees technology or some of this fintech or some of the decentralized finance that's kind of nipping his heels a little bit. Does he have a last act? Does he make some massive acquisition like a Square or a PayPal or, or something like that and really transform this business? Maybe the way that Bob Iger had been kind of angling for over the last few years, because he clearly will be one of these CEOs that is written about for the next hundred years, right? If you think about it, but he just doesn't go out with a whimper, right? He's got to go out with something transformative. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think he is so driven now to change the narrative of, you know, we don't want JP Morgan to be this dinosaur of fintech, like the whole era of those, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo City, all of those. And I know he thought of missing Square as one of the great regrets of his career. I think that two other things he's really pissed off about are what he sees as the unfair regulations on legacy banks versus fintech. And then the other thing that must really just piss him off is the valuation that fintech gets. And as these fintech companies morph into becoming more bank-like, they don't seem to lose that extraordinary valuation. So that's irritating to him. And it's a big problem to him because he can't buy them for cash. He can't dilute his book value that way because they would trade a you know, ridiculous prices. And his stock doesn't trade at a multiple that would allow that to be an accretive or even neutral deal or even mildly dilutive deal. So he's stuck. So he's got to try to build it. And I guess he needs to buy builders. I don't know. I don't know the way out, but I agree. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go down like this. Of, yeah, we're trading nicely. I don't think that's enough for a guy like him. No, and I think short of a run for president, I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon, unless you know, Fed chair, Treasury secretary is in his in his future, which you know, I have no idea. You probably know more than I do. And we mentioned fast money, so as I, as I mentioned, we're 14 years into this, which is probably 15 years longer than you thought we would last. But you know, what are some of the things you're interested in doing? I mean, I know you have a lot of interest. I know you sort of kicked the tires. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but you know, looking at potentially being an owner in a sports team, like where's your head at going forward? It's still there. I'm still interested in that. 
I do care about women's sports. I care about the WNBA. I care about that. I care about women's things. I'm trying to do stuff for Wharton. I care about that. I feel like I've got some other chapter still, and I don't know what it is. And I've been thinking a lot about that. I don't know what it is. No, I know what it is. And you should tell people because people don't realize, maybe they do realize, but you're extraordinarily funny. You're really, really funny. And you know, you did some improv work and I really think you should pursue that, but you think I'm nuts. So can you speak to that? That was the scariest thing I've ever done, which is so ridiculous. So I did this improv. First of all, I felt like such a fish out of water there. Met this improv group. There are people from all over. Most want to be an actor and I just wanted to make money. I mean, it was sort of a odd fit. And then there was this one girl. I said, what do you do? She said, I'm a long short equity investor, which I found hilarious. So we got along well, but it's scary. And the idea, why did I find that so scary? I don't know when two hours earlier, we just did a show where we make up half the stuff sometimes, right? Not that we're lying, but we just, we don't know what's going to happen. Things happen while we're on the air and you got to react spontaneously. That's what improv is. It was scary. It was, that was a muscle I felt like, wow, that's never been used before. It's scary. But you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. And you found that you were really good at it as well. And I think you sometimes, I hate that term comfort zone, but you know, you got to get out of it. And I know doing TV is not necessarily your, I'd say this all the time and I believe this wholeheartedly and I've learned over the years, the smarter you are, the more difficult it is to be on television, which is why I can do it relatively easily. And I'm convinced of that, Kay Fine. Yeah, I think you, yeah. I mean, nobody, you're the poster child for that saying, Guy, right? <laughs> and Dan, what do you say? You have a face for radio? Is that your thing? Yeah, Guy's pivot into podcasting couldn't have come like a day later because the hair is moving around to different places on his body. It, it's just, you know, I, I mean, this is a really happy place for you. Isn't it, Guy, with a mic in your basement? No, I'm just, I'm, I feel like I'm on radio. I mean, podcasting, I mean, I, I am meant to do this because I can sit in front of a microphone and talk to myself for six, seven hours a day. It's effectively, sort of like high school. I was just going to say, it's like me. It's like being back in high school, except the music's worse. Well, but- it's a weird thing. I mean, this is like a really natural conversation. We all know each other like the kind of back of the cover. That that being said, we, we haven't seen each other in over a year, right? I think our last shows at the NASDAQ were in mid-March of 2020. We used to hang out in the green room after the shows. We'd go out, grab a drink. We would go see Karen do improv, whatever. And so it's funny because it's really taken a bit of the vibe out, you know? Like when we talk about what we're doing on TV, everyone was glued to TV for the last year watching the pandemic on cable news and we got used to seeing people in five, six, seven boxes as they say in the biz and it seems really impersonal, right? And, and I hope we get back to a spot where what, what's really fun about it for me and I'd love to hear Karen what you have to say, especially dating back to the days when you started first at Fast Money, Guy just mentioned it, when Dylan was the host and then the average height was like 6'2", average weight 240 on that desk it was like a freaking super wrestler locker room in there and you 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 know you're the only woman that must have been crazy but we have this great chemistry and it's just you know it's a bummer we miss it right like i'm just curious your take on all that i do really miss it i feel like it hasn't been that long because i see you guys i watch the show more now than i ever did when i wasn't on i would never watch but now i do because i want to see you guys and and what else am i doing i can turn it on while i'm on the peloton but I really miss that. And I also think our show in particular 
is a lot of it is about the banter and this tiny half second delay really gets in the way because there's a lot of like, oh, no, oh, you go, never mind. Oh, go ahead, Dan. You know, it's that which we lose, we lose something because the interaction that we have with each other, I think is, first of all, it's really genuine. We like each other, you know, and then we have fun together. We like being together. But it's not quite the same. No, it's not. And I think that's one of the reasons people watch. Listen, if they learn something, I think that's a bonus. And if they can sort of learn alongside us, it's, it's wonderful. But really, it's to, to see that camaraderie and to see the chemistry. And this is the word I use, and it's probably not the correct word. But in a lot of ways, it's aspirational. Not that people want to be us, but they'd love to be hanging out with us. And I think for that hour, that's what they feel like they're doing. And you see it all the time, Karen. I know Dan does as well. People come up to you and they feel like they've known you for the last decade or so. They know everything about you, about your husband, your kids, you know, what you like, what you don't like. And and it's fascinating to see the kind of impact you can have on people from just being in front of a TV camera. Right. That's the thing. There's something about TV. I find people call you back when you're on TV. I don't know why, but it's true. No, TV is still the most powerful medium out there, regardless of what people think. Now, you know, I've obviously known Melissa Lee. I met Mel before I started doing Fast Money, I think. So it's got to be 15 or 16 years ago. Um, we met at some CNBC thing. And we got along then, and we obviously get along now. But you and Melissa have a very special relationship for a number of different reasons. But can you speak to that? You know, Melissa came into our show. We were pretty tight-knit already. And as you know, there's this big group of guys. She obviously had a very different vibe than Dylan right? Very different. And she needed to have a very different, you're never going to replace Dylan, right? And so she wouldn't even begin to try to replace Dylan. She was her own person. And I think, you know, it took her a little bit of time, not that much to get into the sort of the rhythm of the show, but oh my God, what she brings to the show. First of all, the whole IQ level rose dramatically, particularly on days when Guy wasn't there, right Guy? (laughs) And she's just so smart. She's so good at her job. She's so good at anticipating where to go, knowing where to go, remembering what, who said what, who owns what, why they own it. And that she can do all of that while someone's talking to her is astounding to me. She's so good. She's so smart. I always thought, you know, Melissa would be an outstanding investor because, you know, she also could be very emotionless and just you think? <laughs> but she saw she just would be so good. And from investing, you get your ego involved, as I have many times, never works out well. And she would have none of that. She's, I no. mean, I, I, and now Melissa is a mother of twins as well. So that's something she and I share. And I just, those kids are just so crazy cute. It's ridiculous. So twin, twins everywhere. But just one more thing that you said, I mean, we have seen each other have children and graduations and weddings and sadly deaths of our parents. And we've been through a, a lot of things together. We absolutely have. And I think people want to hear a lot of times they wonder, but I don't think you can fake chemistry in life. I don't, definitely you can't fake it on television because I think it magnifies everything. But I think people are always happy to hear that we do get along as well as we appear to get along on television. And it is true. You know, we've we've seen parents pass away. We've seen birth of kids. We've seen all graduations. Kids get into college. Kids not all different things that we've shared together. 
And that's just made us a lot closer. And, you know, we've also gotten involved in a lot of different philanthropic things. And I know you're involved in a number of them, but I think one of the closest things near and dear to you is the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And maybe you can speak to that. Yeah. So the Michael J. Fox Foundation, I've been involved for, I think it's 20 years now. And originally the mission was to hopefully go out of business and in 10 years, but the pace of finding a cure has, we were too optimistic, but the organization has done a fantastic job of, the main thing they've done is sort of take this mantle of who's in charge of curing Parkinson's. We are, and we got to find a way to get that done. And the amount of money that they've raised and the organization that they've built and the amount of grants that they've been able to, trial work they've been able to fund, it's extraordinary. It's progress, it's slow, it's frustrating, but it's work that needs to be done. And Michael Fox himself, I just on a thing last night that he did, is just such an inspiration. And it's amazing. It's amazing what he's built. And so many people helped so much along the way. It's incredible. The teeniest, tiniest little cog, teeny, teeny. Well, that obviously is not the case because I I know that you've kind of worn it on your sleeve as long as I've known you and it's been something very important to you. I'll just say this. It was really fun for me. I mean, obviously we know each other in a lot of different ways, Karen, but to kind of have a personal conversation like this, I think a lot of our viewers probably think that us being so loud guy, you know what I mean? Sometimes trying to drown you, you out a little bit. And, you know, I'll just say that I've learned so much. You have such grace about you on our program and you always try to kind of make everyone else look good around you. I just think that's a nice quality of a person and I view you as a mentor. You know, when I started doing Fast Money, it's it's kind of intimidating when you're that new person and I remember you telling me, you used to give me pointers in the green room every once in a while. One of the most infa- amazing ones that I remember this day is, ah, I was kind of like discouraged because maybe I had something I had said a couple days earlier. It was like the exact opposite. She goes, ah, don't worry about it. They'll forget two days later whatever you said, or something like that. Just be you, you know, or something like that. So you've been a great mentor to me and obviously a great friend. And so it's really fun for us to be able to do this. So I just thank you. And I thank the opportunity to be with you on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. You will regret that, Dan. I will put that back to you at some point. But no, I, I get such a kick out of you guys. I mean, together, separately, I have on sort of my my speed photo, Oscar the Grouch, in case I ever need to put that in for Dan, and our little text. I don't know. I'm honored to be a part of our team. I think it's really fun. It is. We created something, and I can speak from history. I never thought it would last a week, two weeks. And, you know, we caught lightning in a bottle. And bringing you in, it was early, but it was critical because... You know, we needed that dynamic and it's been one, literally we've been together for over 14 years on this thing, which still find it to be remarkable that we've lasted this long. And, you know, God willing, we continue to do it for the next 14 years. And when I'm 97, you know, with the, with the walker, hopefully I'll remember what I said 30 seconds ago, not, not just 30 minutes ago, but thanks Kay Fine for joining us. We really, really enjoyed it. Really fun to be with you. If you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at OnTheTapePod, and we'll see you next week. Music.